0: much. Well, today we're going to begin our subject that's going to take us all summer long to get to only three chapters in the Bible: Matthew five, six, and seven. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew five. If you've got something to write on as well, we're going to be on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to discuss some things today and give an introduction to it today because I don't want to just jump right into it and then miss some of the the learning that we can get from it and the understanding of it. Let me just read the first couple of verses. Next week, we're gonna get into the Beatitudes, which is the prologue or the opening of it. I'll be doing uh, two weeks on that over the next couple of weeks. Chapter five of Matthew, verse one. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, We're not going to go and tell you what he said yet, but at the end of the sermon, at the very end in chapter 7, verse 28, you don't need to turn there, it says, when he finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes or religious leaders. He starts out with just him and the disciples and ends up with crowds. How could that happen? Because if you were to read these three chapters without stopping so, and even read it aloud so as if you were teaching it, it would take about 30 minutes, maybe even a little less. So how after 30 minutes could a few people be assembled and then crowds and large groups be assembled? I think very simply stated is that this is a compilation. When Jesus taught, he taught all day. We Americans don't like that. We want very succinct teaching, don't we? And whenever I go over, someone goes, you were a little too long today. I'm going, I was three minutes longer than normal. And they go, yeah, it was too long. Back then, they, were, they talked for hours and hours and hours because you can see it, they're in the Sea of Galilee, probably the northwest corner, there's Capernaum, there's Magdala, there's all the places where Peter and Mary Magdalene and the other, some of the other disciples are from, the, the new city of Tiberias. And they go to the north a little, and the Sea of Galilee has these rolling hills, beautiful to go up on, and for Jesus to speak, it's a natural amphitheater for him to speak. And so he takes his disciples up there, Starts speaking to them, the sermon that we're going to study. And by the end, people from the villages are seeing this. People on the road down there are seeing them, and they all come up. And there could have been as many as a thousand people or more, because he could be heard the way the, um, the environment was for voices. It's interesting. Let me tell you about how Jesus spoke to people. So, as he spoke, because it there's three people or three groups of people mentioned here, disciples, crowds, and the religious leaders. So who did Jesus talk to? Who was his sermon for? He talked to five different types of people in his ministry. Can I give those to you? And then we'll look at this one in particular. First of all, Jesus taught one-on-one. John chapter three is Nicodemus, right? John chapter four is the woman at the well. There's the rich young ruler. Jesus taught different people, different ways. And one of them was he taught one-on-one with people. The other is he talked to his disciples. That's the 12. We're familiar with the 12 that he talked to. Another one is he talked to the 70 disciples. And you remember I talked about this. The 70 disciples, 70 was their version of 100. So back then, because you read in, in some of the ancient literature, they'd always say there were 70 it's kind of like now, how many are here today? We always say there are 10, there are 100, there's 1,000. We have these big numbers, right? And, but they would say 70. Was there 65? Was it 75? I have no idea. But there was a group of disciples, that's Mary Magdalene was a part of that. The other Mary was a part of that. Um, Cleopas on the road to Emmaus was a part of that. There's 70-ish people. So probably the disciples that were there are the 12 plus some other disciples. We don't know that all the 70 were there. Then Jesus also talked to the thousands. That's when he fed the 5,000. And I think at the end here he had it, was it 1,000 people or 800 people or 1,200? We have no idea, but there was huge crowds that Jesus assembled together. But then there was a fifth group that Jesus talked to, and that was the religious leaders. And there were times when he spoke to the religious leaders. Now the question is, who is this sermon for? This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is for the disciples. This was a sermon for the disciples. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But yet, there was the crowds, there were crowds that were there that assembled as well. It was spoken to the disciples, but there were crowds there. In the crowds were mostly non-believers, but probably somewhat religious people who were there. Very similar to church. Church is filled with disciples, but it's also filled with what would be called the crowd, which are just people that are assembling because they want to be a part of it, but don't necessarily believe what is being spoken. And so, but that is not who he was speaking to. So, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, please understand he is speaking to believers, to his followers. He's giving instructions, and we'll talk about the instructions in a few minutes, but he's giving instructions. Anyone else who's listening to this sermon, he's not giving them instructions on how to live. It's really an invitation to come to him. So there's instruction for us, it's an invitation for others. And here's the problem that happens we think that it's instructions for the non believers. This sermon, as you start reading it, is really for the believers, and we need to understand that. Now, what did Jesus speak about when he would teach? And there are four things that he would speak about. The slides aren't matching, sorry, I got off off kilter here. It's four things that he taught about. Number one, he taught about the kingdom of God. Jesus always spoke about the kingdom of God. And so we talked about that a couple of weeks ago and all the things, but then he also talked about how to live in the kingdom of God, or shall I say the ethics of the kingdom of God? And that is what this sermon is about. How to live in the kingdom of God. He's teaching us how we as believers should live. The other two things Jesus talked about Part of it is in this sermon, but not a lot. One is the fatherhood of God. So, the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, as some would refer to it, is in this sermon, Our Father, who art in heaven. You'll notice most of the prayers of the Old Testament are Our God, not Our our Lord. But in this, he talks to say, pray Our Father. There's the fatherhood of God. And then the last thing is, Jesus talks about his own divinity. He talks about... The fact that he is God. That's not a part of this sermon necessarily because we're early on, we'll talk about that later. Now, and this is all an introduction, what is it that Jesus wanted to communicate to people? What is it that he wanted to communicate? And that's the four truths that Jesus talked about that were up there before. There are four things you need to understand. If you miss this, The rest of the New Testament is meaningless. This is so important. Number one, our spiritual disease is death. Jesus came to reiterate the reality that we all have a spiritual disease and it is death, death. Every one of us is going to experience death. This is very difficult because Elizabeth and I is is a part of our ministry as pastors and also as a part of our ministry as uh, parents who lost a child. So a lot of the work we do is even with people who don't attend our church because when anybody loses a child in South Florida, they call us. We just get the call because we have experienced it. Death is real. Death is a reality, whether it's by living to 100 years old or it's dying at three years old or having a crib death or being stillborn or dying at 13 like our son did or whatever, death is real. And Jesus came to reiterate that it is a spiritual disease that causes death. We need to understand that. Number two is this, that the cause of the disease is sin. We must understand that. The cause is sin. Now, it may not be directly your sin that causes your direct death at the time, because if I come to you with a gun, don't worry, I have none. But if I did and I shot you, it's my sin that caused your death. But please understand, if I didn't shoot you and you live to be 100, you're still gonna die. Because whether it's my sin that caused your death or the reality of sin in your own life, you will die. And people in the United States do not wanna hear this. We are basically good is what the common understanding is. We're all good. There's a few bad people and we incarcerate those bad people and everybody else is good. The reality is this, As Alexander Solzhenitsyn and everybody else has said, good and bad strikes right in the middle of the heart. There is good in your heart, there's no doubt, there's good stuff, not in your heart, but in your life. You do good things, you give money to the poor, that's good. But the reality is, there's sin in your life. And the sin causes death. It also causes pain, sorrow, tears, and many other things. But the spiritual disease is death, the cause, or the reason of it is sin. Number three, we cannot save ourselves. Please understand this. This is core to the gospel. This is core to the Sermon on the Mount. This is core to everything we believe. The minute you think you can save yourself, you are diverting away from the gospel. You're diverting away from the Bible. You're diverting away from Jesus' teaching. You cannot save yourself. Write me a check for a million dollars for the church. I'll thank you. I'll send you flowers. I'll take you to dinner, but it will not save your soul. I'll take your million dollars. It will not save your soul. It'll give you a good feeling. It'll help a lot of people. We can help Gajendra with it. It's all good, but it will not save your soul because you cannot do anything to save your soul. Nothing good, nothing bad, it's all, it's done, it's, you can't do anything. No matter what you do. See, and this is important to understand because people have this fear, you know, I, was, I didn't live a good enough life. Well, of course you didn't live a good enough life. I mean, hello, that's why we have church. None of us have lived a good enough life except the one Jesus Christ. Here's the thing though, number four. And this is where it all comes together in the Sermon on the Mount. The prescription for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. That's it, that's it. You don't need a lot of, I, I, can, I can parse this in a lot of 11-letter words if you want me to. If I can do it. I know how to do it, but here's the reality. The disease is death, the cause is sin, there's nothing you can do about it, Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. That's it. That's, the, that's what we believe. So, over the next few weeks, I don't have a cold. I'm just get emotional about this. I just get so excited. Over the next few months, as Francois and Matthew and I talk about this, we're gonna, there's some things that tells you how you should live. Don't be angry. Be humble. All these, Okay. None of that's getting you to heaven. That's what you live like when you're in the kingdom of heaven. You see, to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've gotta believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to be humble. I want you not to be proud. I want you to be generous. I want you to be a resilient disciple as Gajendra just described it. Oh yes, of course. But that's afterwards because it is faith in Jesus Christ and him alone and if we add anything else to it so when we do the study of this if we're adding things please understand it's nothing is to be added it's faith in Jesus Christ and that's all it is so we could all go home now and skip church all summer if you want <laughs> Oh that's not good So there's three things that are always spoken about in the New Testament Jesus speaks about it. Paul speaks about it. John sp- spoke about it in our study the last couple of months. I spoke about it at Easter. The three big things, can I give them to you? If you come from the Catholic uh, background, they're the three main virtues that you were taught in Catholic school. It's faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. I want you to write those down because everything we do in some form or another follows faith, hope, and love. We're gonna look at this in a few moments as we kind of understand this more. Now, let's, let's bring some thoughts to this. So C.S. Lewis, has anybody read C.S. Lewis? He's kind of fallen out of, okay, can I just do it yourself a favor? Get a book by C.S. Lewis. I think he was the greatest author in English language in the 20th century. Non-believer, became a believer and just could really articulate things. If you wanna start with one book, it's mere Christianity. If you have children or grandchildren, start with the Chronicles of Narnia. It's unbelievable. But he said this whole thing, this whole thing of following Christ are like ships, ships. Now think about it, ships. So let's pretend that we're a group of ships and we're leaving port. Okay, each one of you is a ship and we're leaving port. Let's just say there's 10 of us and we're leaving the port and we're each a ship. There are three things that you need to know as being on the captain of that ship. Number one, let me just get to my notes for a moment. You need to know how to avoid colliding with the other ships as a captain of one of the ships, you need to know how not to collide with the other ships. Because if you collide, crashes, sinking, etc. That Sermon on the Mount describes that. The public word would be social virtue, social ethics, how to live with each other. And the Sermon on the Mount helps us learn how to live with each other. How to be ships without colliding with each other. Number two, C.S. Lewis would say, as a ship, you need to know how to stay afloat, how not to tip over. Uh, The British call it to stay ship shape. In other words, you stay upright when the winds and the storms and the waves and the rains like we had on Friday all come. How do you stay upright? That's personal ethics. And the Sermon on the Mount talks all about that. The personal ethics of things. You should be humble, not proud. The virtues versus the vices. We're gonna talk about vices. We're gonna talk about virtues in this study. He says standing up. But there's a third thing you need to know as the captain of the ship. And that is where are we going? And the Sermon on the Mount tells us where we're going. We're going to the kingdom of heaven, and it describes how we're going to get there, and that the three chapters do. So how do we not collide? How do we stay upright? And how do we know where we're going as a ship? And the Sermon on the Mount answers all those questions. So as you read it, think about, oh, what is this talking about? Is this how I live with one another? Is this how I live with myself? Is this how I know where I am going? So now let's look at it. So when Jesus came, what did he do? When Jesus came to earth, what did he do? Well, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. But what else did he come to do? He came to start a new movement. A new movement. That new movement was what? The church. He came to start the church. The word church in Greek, and I don't use a lot of Greek and I don't wanna impress anybody, it doesn't matter, but it's the word ekklesia, ek, like exit, means out. It's the called out ones. Now, how we have defined it over the years is that we have been called out of society and into church. But that's not what he is saying. We have been called out to go out into society. Because the ecclesia, the called out ones were, back in the Roman times, and you remember Rome was just a, um, a version of Greek culture. If you're familiar with ancient cultures, it was the Greek culture, and they call it the Hellenistic culture. And the Hellenistic culture, what would happen, Alexander the Great was the first one of this, he would go and conquer a land, and then he would bring people who understood the Greek culture and called them out of Athens and took them over to another city, let's say Carthage. And then they were called out to share the understanding of the Greek culture with this new culture that knew nothing about the Greek culture. Well, then the Romans took it over and they did the same thing. They were taking all over all these towns and regions and everything. And as soon as they did, they'd put up a, some type of statue of the emperor or something like that, or one of the gods or whatever. Then they would call people out and say, go to this city and make it Roman, share our principles, share who we are. That is what Jesus is saying that we are called out to do. We are called out to be, later on, he says go, we are called out to share what we understand as the church, the principles of Jesus Christ to other people. That's what we're supposed to do. We are not called out to be here. We are called out to be there. We come here to be prepared to go there. We come here to worship together. We come here to learn. We come here to be discipled so that we can go there. That's what this means, to be called out. We are the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. That's number one. He called us to have a new movement. Number two, he created something called a new kingdom. There's a new kingdom that he talks about, right? And, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. The first word we're gonna get to next week is he's talking about a new kingdom. This new kingdom, which is first spoken about in the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount, is really, he talks about the ethics of how to live in this new kingdom. If you weren't here, we did a whole study on the new kingdom, I don't know, six months ago or so but let me just give you a short version of it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you live in two kingdoms. We are two kingdom people. If you're not a follower of Christ, you live in one kingdom. The non-followers of Christ live in the kingdom of earth. The followers of Christ live on the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. Now, most of us think the kingdom of earth is here. I was born, I live, I die. I'm a believer, I go into the kingdom of heaven, and now I start part two of the world. That is not true. If you follow Jesus Christ, you're born. At some point in time, you follow Jesus Christ, and the Bible says you are born again, right? You're born again into a new kingdom. So the new kingdom lives on from here on. Now, I don't die in earth till over here. So in this period of time from when I became a believer to I die on earth, I am living in two kingdoms. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us how to live in these two kingdoms. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is. It doesn't tell us how to live in the one kingdom and it doesn't tell us how to live in the one kingdom afterwards. It's telling us how to live in two kingdoms. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So as you're reading it, you're going, this is for instruction for believers on how I should live and how we as a church should live and act in the two kingdoms. I hope this makes sense because it's not. Later on, there's a lot on the later on, but it's that. So he came to bring a new movement. He came to bring the new kingdom. Remember with Pontius Pilate he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, we would be fighting you. It is not of this world. He has another kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us how to live. Number three, he gives us a new covenant. Please understand this there is a new covenant, and that new covenant is Jesus Christ as our Savior. The old covenant in the Bible was. That we had in the most the law of Moses, and then into the law of David, etc., was a sacrificial system. It was a system where you would uh, you had the bulls, and you had the rams, and you had the turtle doves, and you did these certain seasonal things, and etc., etc., etc. And that's how you had the covenant, and that's how you we progressed back then. But Jesus came and said, "A new covenant I have brought." And he said something like, it's in my blood, didn't he? The new covenant I give to you that's in my blood. It's the reality of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the new covenant. Jesus Christ is our Savior. That's where the word faith comes in. Faith. You want to talk about faith? It's faith in the new covenant. It's not faith in the old covenant. It's not faith in my pre uh, religious life or my pre-belief life. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And then he comes. So he doesn't just bring a new covenant and a new kingdom, a new movement. He brings a new commandment. You remember what the new commandment was? Love one another. So we're going from faith in Christ. Now we got to have love for one another. John chapter 13, we, I did a sermon on this. Three or four months ago, we had to have love for one another. It's a new commandment Jesus gives. The Sermon on the Mount gives us the precursor on understanding how we are to love one another, which is how do we avoid collision, how do we work together as ships going in a certain direction. But then he doesn't stop there. Pretty amazing. What does he do? He gives us a new commission. And what is the new commission? To make disciples. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago during our Easter time. It is to make disciples. Now how does all this work? Faith, hope, and love. The new covenant that Jesus Christ is our Savior requires faith. To love one another requires love. To make disciples requires hope. Did you hear the hope in Godrendra's voice a few moments ago? What was the hope? Did you hear it? It was an incredible hope. The hope was this, that as kids come to Jesus as their Savior, as kids get discipled, make disciples, that... The world is going to change around where we live. Do you see that? That's hope. He's hoping, can you imagine? He's hoping that Pakistan's going to change. Not a lot of believers in Pakistan right now, but can I tell you there are. We support some of them. We don't tell it. We don't announce it. It's just not appropriate to do that, but there are incredible believers in Pakistan right now. His goal is to get some of them into the country adjacent to it, Afghanistan. Amazing stuff, and there's a hope. Do you see the faith, hope, and love? It's not just a song we sang that we were singing a few minutes ago. It's not just that, it's a reality. If you have faith, you are to love one another and have hope that God is in control in this thing. And yet so many of us live in fear, and God has called us not to live in fear, right? How does this all come together? Let me close. If you have your Bibles or your iPhones, go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21. Jesus is bringing a new city. This is the amazing part. Revelation 21, verse one to five, I'm gonna read it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with people, with man and women. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be them as their God. What a hope that is. An amazing new city. And then what does he say? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will. Um, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In this new city, the curse that is in Genesis chapter 3 that we will have pain, sorrow, tears, and death, the spiritual requirements of sin, the reality of sin, will all pass away. And listen to verse 5, underline it if you can. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That is the hope of our salvation, that there is an end to this, that Jesus Christ is making all things new. And that's where the goal is. That's where we're heading. But here's the point. There's a lot of living between now and then, right here. You're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, you're not in that world yet, it's coming, we have the hope of it, it's called the blessed hope, but we've gotta live in this world. And how do we live in this world? The Sermon on the Mount tells us how to live in this world. And so, our time is up, but over the next week, before we get here, next week, do yourself a favor and read Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. It is a great treatise on how to live in this world, and we're going to begin looking at it. And we're just going to look at the first 12 verses over the next two weeks and then following that. Let's bow our heads.